Isaiah 54. Now, there, you know, I don't really know. There, there, I, don't, I don't know exactly how, the best way to cover all of this, but um, I do want to just remind you of the context that that we just got through right before Christmas, the week before Christmas. Um, we just got through the fourth and most significant servant song. The one that really answers all the pressing questions, if you're paying attention, the pressing questions that you should have uh, in this section of Isaiah. Namely, you know, what's, what's the big problem? What's God's solution to it? And ultimately that solution has a number of levels, historical and, and, and theological, but, but it centers ultimately on the work of the servant. And the servant's work centers ultimately on his substitutionary atonement uh, on behalf of God's people because uh, the real problem is sin and, and, and the, the great distance that that brings between God and his creatures and, and the great need is, is forgiveness and propitiation and then transformation as well. So Isaiah 53 kind of pulls all that together and it also answers these questions about the servant. That, that Isaiah uh, ha- has, has raised. Questions like, well, why, how is the servant both the conqueror and, you know, uh, discouraged? Uh, how, how is it that he is the, the, the king, but, but also he appears to be suffering and he identifies with those who are suffering? And so all of that gets sort of crystallized in Isaiah 52 through 53, which is, which is why it's so precious to us. Now, what, what then is going to happen is, um, in Isaiah 54, um, it's going to kind of give us the results of that. And then, and then in Isaiah um, 55, we're going to start a new section, essentially. Um, so, so 54 kind of brings to a head um, the, the whole, this whole, uh, or, or sorry, I should say, 54 and 55, and then 56 starts a new section. Um, 54 and 55 kind of bring to conclusion this great um, emphasis on the servant. So a, a big picture, and we'll get a little more granular with this. In 54, what you realize is the, the death of the suffering servant and then the vindication of the servant. It doesn't speak in terms of resurrection, but at the end he's alive and he's vindicated. So even though he dies in the middle. So there's that resurrection theme in 53. Um, what this, what this uh, is going to mean for God's people is it's going to mean a new covenant relationship. And, and 54, as, we're, as we'll see, kind of unpacks what that looks like and why that is significant and what that means for their everyday life. And then 55... Is a um, is a kind of um, is a kind of call to the world to come and experience um, who God is, particularly. Uh, so I'm going to say, call to the world, and it's going to focus on God's forgiveness and mercy. So. If you want to sort of, again, zoom way out, we started all the way back in chapter 40, and in chapter 40, it focused on the sovereignty of God, 
well, what are the implications of the sovereignty of God for, for the salvation of his people? That's you know gets unpacked through through 41, 42, and the servant songs. But then but then it's as if bookending God's sovereignty in chapter 40 is God's compassion in, in chapter 55. And in a sense, um, it's it's the, the compassion is is played out, is is poured out. Because of the work of the servant. So in other words, we talked about this two weeks ago when we were together. Um, we talked about in, in, in Exodus 34, how when God comes down and reveals himself to Moses, he says, you know, I'm gracious, I'm compassionate, I love forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Okay, that's great. But I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And you sort of think, how do those two things fit together? And what we see in the rest of the Old Testament, and particularly in the New Testament, is that the way those things are both true is because at the center of it all is this appeasement of God's wrath through the, the suffering servant. And, and so then you start to realize, okay, the reason why God is able to be forgiving and compassionate is because of the work of the suffering servant who satisfies that justice. And we talked in Isaiah 53, and I tried to show you in Isaiah 53, how those Exodus 34 characteristics are, are kind of built upon, alluded to, so that you know that's what's going on in the minds of, of, of Isaiah, mind of Isaiah. So, um, so anyway, the, the, the point is that um, God's mercy and compassion are poured out because of his sovereignty in, um, in, in saving his people through, uh, through the suffering servant. So, in other words, if you, take, if you just say God is sovereign, which Isaiah 40 says, and, and he'll do it, okay, that's great. But, but if you take the servant out of that equation, um, you, don't actually, you don't actually reach the end of God's compassion. In other words, if you take, to put it in, in just sort of our terms, if you take... Christ's substitutionary work out of the, the message of uh, the church or out of the message of Christianity, you don't actually have at the end a compassionate and just God. And actually, I mean, just as a little parenthesis, this is, this is, there are, there are several huge problems, but but this is the most significant central problem uh, with the modern liberal church as it begins in the 19th century and continues on even today. This is why, this is why you can go into a church and hear them say moral things, give you good moral advice, and be nice people, but there's actually no real power there. In a sense, God is absent and the reason why he's absent is because Christ and his substitutionary atonement isn't at the heart of it all the time. This is why when Paul talks about his ministry in Corinth, he says, My what I resolved was to preach nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you can you can scratch your head at the end of a sermon in a in a in a church that has gone this direction. And it's not just in what is traditionally 
the liberal mainline. Now it's in evangelical churches as well. You can scratch your head and say, I kind of agreed with everything there. Um, and it seems like these are nice people who probably share many of my convictions, but and I could get along really well with them, but like, what's, what's missing? Something's missing. And, and usually that only plays out over a long period of time and you start to realize what's missing. But, but what's almost always missing is that at the heart of their Christian or their understanding of the Christian life, their heart of under, at the heart of their understanding of themselves, at the heart of their understanding of what's wrong with you and and all of us is the, what's missing is the suffering servant. Um, and so it, that's why Isaiah forty to fifty five is a kind of microcosm of the theology of the New Testament. And and I I maybe said that in slightly different words when we started this whole section, that this is this is the most quoted section of Isaiah. Now Isaiah 53 is the most quoted section in or most quoted chapter in the most quoted section, but but it's not really just Isaiah 53, it's the whole thing. And when you when you when you read Paul kind of reasoning through and explaining why he he's doing what he's doing. He's going to places where Christ has not been named and he's preaching the gospel. Um, what, you, what you find more often than not in those places where he does that, in First and Second Corinthians and in Romans and in Galatians, what you find is more often than not what he does is he quotes from Isaiah 40 to 55. Because it sort of lays it all out for you. And, um, and, and at the center of it, of course, is the, is the death of the Son. But that, then that, if, if that is at the center, so now, now we, we've taken it out and talked about uh, liberal Christianity, but now let's put it back in and, and say, um, when it's in there, when it's not just in there, but central, so that you know, this is really at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, when it's central, what you actually get then is... Um, not only do you have a, a high and robust view of the sovereignty of God, you end up beginning to understand how God relates to his people covenantally, and you also get this glorious picture of a merciful God who calls to anyone who thirsts to come to him. And so we'll get to that whole call in just a second. So uh, that's sort of a big picture, what's going on. Now, let's talk about this. Um, Isaiah 54, Covenant of Peace. My, my hope today, and we'll, we'll see how it goes, is my, ho my hope today is that we'll look a little bit at Isaiah 54, a little at Isaiah 55, and then at least address or kind of uh, give some pointers, some thoughts about that last section of the book, 56 to 66. All right, let's look at 54. So... Um, because of the work of the suffering servant, what, um, what we have is this picture of, of the Lord. I'm going to pick up in verse 6 of Isaiah 54. Yahweh has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, 
says the Lord, your Redeemer. So what, what God says is, okay, because or after, subsequent to, based upon, whatever word you want to use to talk about it being foundational, be, based upon the work of the suffering servant, what's happened is, I, I cast you aside because of your disobedience, because of your spiritual adultery, but, but in the end, that's only, that was only for a short time. And now Israel is about to go into exile. When, when they hear Judah is about to go into exile, northern tribes are already in exile. Um, and, and so he's talking about you know, things that are yet future. The suffering servant is yet future. But what he's sort of look, saying is, looking back, it was just a short time. And now what you're getting from me, because of the work of the suffering servant and all that he's done, now what you're getting from me is an eternal covenant of peace that will never end. Verse 9. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Now, this is that that's a critical that's a critical statement. Let's talk a little bit about the Noahic covenant. Because he alludes to it. You know the, the account of, of Noah and the flood. And what happens at the end of that is God makes a very important covenant with everybody. And the reason why it's such a significant covenant is, in a sense, it, it allows for all the other covenant promises to come true. Because it's a covenant that says... Um, I'm not going to judge the earth with a flood and I'm going to continue summer and winter and seed time and harvest until the very end. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because, because that, that then means that, in a sense, God, God is uh, creating the conditions um, under which redemption can take place, under which all the other covenant promises can take place. So it's significant that the covenant with Noah precedes the covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham is much more specific, and it's much more salvation-oriented. But it, it ha the covenant with Noah had to come first, because the covenant with Noah is basically God's declaration, I'm going to withhold judgment. I'm going to withhold ju ultimate judgment, devastation on the whole earth, until the very end. And that... That means it's now possible, because God is withholding judgment, it means it's possible for the, him also to exercise these specific works of election and, 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 and saving covenantal blessing for his people. And he says, the eternal covenant with my people is going to be like that, in that it's, it's, it's not going to end. And it's going to, it's going to as it were, Create the 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 whole uh, set up the whole preconditions under which they can be uh, they can be justified and and, and, and made holy and, and, and glorified. So that's that's why it's so significant. Now now what does he say about it? He says the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. Now this is actually. 
we could trace this language through the Psalms, and it's it's uh, it would be a fruitful study because um, there are places like in Psalm forty six where what uh, what's envisioned in Psalm forty six is that the mountains what what do you do if the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea and and the waters are just breaking over you in other words what do you do when the flood is happening, and mountains are going into the sea. Well, well, what Psalm 46 says is, actually, God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. And those are the two images it uses. It uses the image of the flood. God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. And he uses the image of the, water, or the, the mountains going into the sea. God is an ever-present help in trouble. And, 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 and Isaiah, Isaiah uses that same image. Even, even if the mountains are, in a sense, even if the flood is happening, the mountains are being dissolved, the everlasting covenant of God won't be, uh, won't be annulled. Now, in, in other words, what, what, what that's another way of saying is um, nothing can undo this. I mean, the, the Noahic covenant is solid. You can count on it. But... If it's possible to be even more solid than that, this is even more solid than that. Um, and so that, that's, that's how significant. But it also reminds us that, um, that the, the blessing of God that's going to ultimately lead us into a, into a call to the world to have uh, knowledge of God as a merciful God is is covenantal in its shape. Um, it is, it is to, to understand how God relates to man uh, is, to, uh, is to get into this whole mindset of the covenant and, and to begin to think covenantally. Um, he calls it here a covenant of peace. That is a term that is used in the book of Hebrews. It's used in Jesus' Last Supper in Luke's account of it, and it's used in Ezekiel 37. Maybe it's worth just at least looking at the Ezekiel reference because it's probably not as familiar. So if you turn to Ezekiel 37, this is really interesting how Ezekiel uses this language um, because... He talks about this as well as an everlasting covenant. But I want to I wanna, uh, set the context with you. Uh, in, in Ezekiel 37, he, he introduces it by uh, giving Ezekiel this um, mission where he has to go into a valley of dry bones and prophesy to the dry bones. And then the dry bones are raised up and it and it turns into an army. The Spirit of God takes them. But then, then here's what it says. Um, let me see. I don't know where to pick up exactly because it's a long section, but that's okay. I'm going to pick up in verse 15 of Ezekiel 37. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom. And the house of Israel associated with him. Then join them one to another into one stick. That they may become one in your hand. Uh, and when your people say to you. 
Will you not tell us what you mean by these? Satan thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hands before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, so they're in exile, and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no, be no longer two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of the transgressions. But I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules, be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, he says. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. And my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now, um. The thing about this is that uh, what, Isa- what Ezekiel is doing and what Isaiah is doing is they're taking all the earlier covenant promises. So we had this promise with Noah that's really to everybody. Everybody benefits from it. And it l- lays the preconditions for the other covenants. And then he's taking the substance of the covenant with Abraham and the substance of the covenant with David. And even the substance of the covenant made with Moses, which which involved obedience and loving God and loving your neighbor. And he's, and he's showing that in what God's about to do, those are all a kind of a package deal. That those are all going to be wrapped together in one sort of uber covenant, this covenant of peace, this everlasting covenant of peace. And what Isaiah tells us is that that covenant of peace, that kind of package deal covenant, that takes all the salvation promises from those earlier covenants and puts them together and says, actually, it's not three separate ones, it's one. And here it is. Um, What Isaiah tells us is that that covenant of peace is uh, brought, is made effective, is, is, is applied to God's people as a result of the... The, the work of the suffering servant. So what, what does the suffering servant lead to? Well, it's forgiveness. It's, it's um, reconciliation between God and his people. But that is um, th- th- that th- the next thing to talk about is the fact that they're part of this everlasting covenant. So, so Ezekiel kind of expands upon the, the substance of the covenant, but it's in Isaiah that we see the direct connection between that covenant and and the work of the Messiah, the work of the of the coming uh, suffering servant. Now, uh, what does this remind us of? Well, um, the, the the Bible uh, talks. The Hebrews book of Hebrews talks about the blood of the eternal covenant, the blood shed by Jesus as being the blood of the eternal covenant. 
and and it it underscores a couple of things. It underscores first of all that um, we're we're in a just as just as all God's people have been from the beginning of time. We're in a a covenantal relationship with God. And, and, and that covenant is his new covenant, this eternal covenant that, that as it were, pulls together all the threads of the earlier covenant promises. And it's, and it's given to us through the death of Jesus Christ. And, and, and that, that's at the center of it. And, and, and this is why when, when we talk about almost everything in the church, whether it's how we treat children to how we think about worship to what we're doing in communion to uh, you know how we relate to each other like everything you'll, you'll always hear this covenantal language associated with it and the reason for that is because that's the that's the that's the relational structure that that we get in the bible to talk about what it means to be uh, to be a Christian, to be one of God's people, um, it's all this covenantal language. So, so this underscores that that um, the mountains may depart, hills may be removed, but my steadfast love, my covenant faithfulness, shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Now. Um, the rest of the chapter, in chapter 54, after introducing that great reality, um, acknowledges the situation they're in right then, as Isaiah is preaching this sermon to them. And the situation they're in right then is, you know, your uh, things are going badly. You're, you're, you, you feel like you're to- tossed by storms. But but just, just remember what God has promised, um, that actually... Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. Great shall be the peace of the children, of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. So in other words, yes, it's bad for you. Yes, you're going to go through the exile. But God's going to bring about a redemption that will lead to an eternal covenant of peace. So if you're able to look forward to generations to come, um, it's going to be a totally different, it's going to be a totally different story for them if you look to the future. Would uh, they understand that? Uh, probably very few of them did, is my guess. I mean, the prophets are almost universally rejected. Isaiah, you know, is too. I mean, he's the Lord says from the beginning, you're going to preach to these people, and they're going to listen to you, but they're not going to understand what you're saying. So I think it was very, very few. And I've talked about this before, so I don't want to, um, I don't, I don't want to belabor it, but, um, but when you look at the, the, the information we have from the people during the exile and what they were thinking and writing, and then particularly from the people in the intertestamental period, which we have more detail on, um, they were very confused about what restoration would look like. So, you know, we're the, I, I'm sure there were believe. I know there were believers who were hearing Isaiah and thanking the Lord for it and looking forward to these future promises, just like Abraham looked forward to a city whose builder and maker was God, but he didn't see it. Sure there were, but 
it's the minority for sure. It's not the majority. And even, and I know I said this two weeks ago, so again, I don't want to be too redundant, but um, even, even when Jesus appears on the scene and is fulfilling these promises, quoting from these texts and applying them to himself and everything, they still don't really understand what's going on. For the most part, some do. For the most part, they don't. And, and the strange thing is, this month's Table Talk is gets down on a personal level of peace. Oh, does it? I haven't read it yet. I haven't read it. But yeah, I mean, all, all that flows into this for sure. Okay, so other, other questions, comments, thoughts, pushback, anything? Okay. No, that takes us to 55. And, you know, have you ever noticed that when, and maybe you experienced this at a time in your life, but have you ever noticed that, particularly when someone's a little bit older and they, they come to saving faith, and they, 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 you know, they hear the gospel, and maybe they've heard it before, maybe they haven't, but it just, the Lord works and saves them that usually when that happens, um, their first like few months, they're very eager to, to share the gospel with others. And, and again, maybe you experienced that as, a, as in, a, you know, as when you heard the gospel, maybe it's like, it clicks, you realize how amazing it is, and you kind of want to tell everybody. And it's great. It's a great, it, 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 it's sort of sad that that tends to wane in people. Some people, you know, you occasionally meet the person who, it, like, it never stops. They're always so overwhelmed by the grace of God in Christ. But a lot of times it fades, sadly, in us. But anyway, um, you know, there's that, uh, what, I, what I'm trying to uh, use that as an illustration for is there's this almost logical connection, isn't there, that once you realize this, once you go, wow, so, so the death of Christ is at the center, and I... And I'm, I'm required to look to him in faith. And, and he's died and been raised from the dead on my behalf. Because I, like a sheep, had gone astray. And, and I was estranged from God. And now the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of me. And, um, and, and brought me into this eternal covenant of peace. So that, so that I have all these blessings that were associated with the blessings um, laid out in the covenants. All these salvation blessings. And... And they're mine in Christ. And you, you, just, you just start to peel back the layers of this blessing, this compassionate, covenant-keeping, promise-making, promise-keeping God. And, and, and what naturally should come out of that is, and, and it should come out of it in sermons too, what should naturally come out of that is, now you, all, all of you, come and receive this. This is, this is, exactly what you're looking for so so why are you why are you sitting on your hands why are you keeping this compassionate gracious offer of god at arm's length why are you living your life for other things why aren't you um coming to him and this is this is 54 to 55 because re, i want to read the end of verse 17 and then just into 55.1 No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. 
This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me declares Yahweh. So if that's true, why does, come on everybody, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that you did not know. You shall run, shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Because my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Now so it's this incredible and 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 logically necessary um, call to repentance and faith. Come and get this, this food and water that you are longing for because everything else you've tried is not satisfying you. And you're spending all your money on it and it leaves you empty. And this, you've got to spend, no, it costs you nothing and it leaves you full. And, 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 and what you get when you embrace that, yeah, you, you had to turn from your ways. You have to turn from your sins. He makes that really clear in verse 7. You have to turn from your ways, but, but what you get is the Lord. And, and not only do you get the Lord, you get the covenant promises, the covenant relationship that the Lord gives and makes with his people. That's what you get. And, and, and now, now, you may be familiar with these words from a lot of different sources, but one source in particular, I think, is particularly relevant in this case. Because if you look at, if you kind of keep your hand in Isaiah 55, and you turn to John 7, Jesus, um, in John 7, well, you know, you could also turn to John 6, where he says, I'm the bread of life. You need to come and, and eat eat of me. But but in John 7, he directly mentions this. Um, in John 7, he is uh, at the Feast of Booths, and they're, they're asking a question about, you know, who he is, and, and, and the Pharisees are, are kind of closing their grip in on Jesus because they, they see that the crowd is starting to say, you know, is this is possibly this the Messiah? And they're, they're reading their Old Testament and they're looking at Jesus. And so I'm going to pick up in verse 32. Um, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying you will seek me and will not find me? They're just thinking on a very superficial level. And where I am, you cannot come. And on the last day of the feast, and something important about the geography of Jerusalem, because on the last day of the feast, they would have been carrying these, these jugs of water, and there's this great time of purification. And Jesus, in verse 37, stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, you go back to that, to Isaiah 55, and Yahweh says, Come, anyone who thirsts, and I will will give you water that will fully satisfy you. You may even be thinking about John 5, and Jesus encounter with the woman at the well but um but but here in in, uh, john 7 jesus takes these words but he says come to me if you thirst and i'll give you this and 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 you won't need anything else and then he adds to it another promise which is also a, a, a a a new covenant promise which we know from jeremiah which is not only that but I'll give you, I'll give it in such a way that not only will you be fully satisfied, but you'll actually be fruitful. Because not only will you not thirst, but living water will flow from you to others. And John very helpfully says, he was talking here about the Holy Spirit. So you start to see what's on offer in Isaiah 55. And it is, it's pretty remarkable. What's on offer in Isaiah 55 in this covenant of peace, um, which is in Christ, um, what's on offer is satisfaction of the, the real and deep needs and longings of your life. What's on offer is a new and living relationship with God that is eternal as your Father in this covenantal relationship that won't ever dissolve. And um, what's on offer, and and forgiveness of sins, and new life, and all of that, and according to Jesus, um, the the ministry of the Spirit, and according to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, because they both bring this up. In fact, Jesus quotes directly from Ezekiel when he says, the springs of living water will flow from you. So, so, but, but according, we'll just use Jesus right now and not bring Jeremiah and Ezekiel into the equation, but also what's, what's on offer is the ministry of the Spirit by which you can now have a life that is fruitful and useful in an eternal way, not just a kind of temporal way that is ephemeral and doesn't last because the, 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 the Spirit of God works through you and, and actually, and actually His it accomplishes something real, accomplishes something lasting. So you put all that on the list and you go, well, that's, I mean, what else, what, you know, what better news could you get? What better offer could you receive from the Lord? And what's so striking is as, 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 as poignant and as meaningful and as almost overwhelming as it is to hear that now, as it's preached now, it's even more amazing that Isaiah preached it then 
when they're about to go into exile. He said, here's, here's what God offers you, even though things look bad. Now, I want to kind of double back on myself here. See you later, Sarah. Um, I want to I double back on myself and say this. That I mentioned earlier that if you take Christ out of, or, no, not even, let me be more specific. If you take the substitutionary atonement of Christ out of a church, then you go, well, we're still preaching moral things, and we're still, you know, uh, everyone's still getting along with each other, and we're telling them to be good, and we're giving them all these wonderful you know, uplifting promises of God. But but you see how that can't work? It, it can't work. You can't you can't give these wonderful, uplifting, merciful promises of God, these excerpts that you know are strung together and put in booklets that they sell at the airport. You can't do that um, biblically without without actually having a a substitute um, redeemer at the heart of it. Because in Isaiah, it's super clear that he is the new covenant. He is the, he is the, the, the son of David. He is the one who, who gives all these things. And Jesus makes it clear too. You, you, don't, you don't get the springs of living water and the water that satisfies unless you come to him. And, and so, trying to kind of, you know, kind of, kind of, lever out these these other promises, these these promises about a merciful God, these promises about an eternal covenant of peace, these promises about a blessing and and, 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 and even this invitation, trying to kind of you know yank those out from the heart which is which is the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus just won't work in Isaiah's message. And Isaiah makes it really clear it just won't work. And Paul makes it really clear that it just won't work. But you put that in and you realize this is so much more. Because there's another error, right? The, the other error, there's the, there's the error of taking the substitutionary atonement out and thinking you just get to keep all the happy promises and the nice behavior. Um, but there's another error on the other side, isn't there? Which is you kind of have the, sub, the substitute savior, but... You've just neglected all these blessings that come from him. Um, maybe you don't preach about repentance from sin. Or maybe you don't recognize the, the covenantal relationship into which we've been called. Or maybe you don't understand the ministry of the Spirit who causes us to walk in newness of life. And so you have this kind of Jesus giving you cosmic fire insurance, but nothing else of the rich tapestry of salvation and that's an error too um and that and that 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 wouldn't make any sense to isaiah either it's all it, it's all bound together in, in the work of god in salvation now and it leads of course to singing and worship at the end of 55 now i'm just going to touch on this because we, we're, we're we're out of time 56 through 66 then paints a picture of a community of God's people who are transformed by 
and informed by that message of 40 to 55. What does it actually look like? This is kind of the question. What does it actually look like to be a community of people? And he's going to use terminology and images that make sense for his audience, right? Because he's preaching to Judah and Jerusalem just prior to the exile. So he's going to use terminology that makes sense to them. But, but what does it look like to be that transformed people? Like, what's it going to look like for their, what he talks about, their grandchildren who inherit the promises? And that's what 56 to 66 tell us. And so what 56 to 66 lay out for us is this very vivid picture of, um, of God's redeemed people in, 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 in the future, after, after the Lord has, um, has done this, has made them a new, a new community. Um, and so I don't want to get, get too far into that because we'll, we'll have time next week, but that's the basic gist of it. Um, all right. So we're out of time. Let me, let me close in prayer. Lord, we're grateful once again for your word. We're mindful and we confess to you that we cannot possibly do justice to uh, not only the text itself, but the implications of it for our lives. But we're so grateful because you've given us a glimpse of your redeeming work in Christ and what a glimpse it has been. And so, Father, by your spirit, whom you have given to your people who are united to Christ in faith, please continue to cause us to uh, grow up in him and to be more Christ-like and to be useful for you by your spirit. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.